It'd be hard to preach this message without a mic, wouldn't it? It'd be difficult to preach without amplification. It would be difficult to hear the message, to hear God's word, if this mic wasn't amplifying my voice, if it wasn't amplifying my message. Without a a mic in this room, no matter how great of a message it is, uh, it won't be effective. And what Peter wants to do for us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 is he wants to show us that just like this mic amplifies my voice so that my message can be heard, our lives amplify our message. Peter wants to show us that our gospel proclamation is amplified by the type of life that we live. And that by the way you live, you can either amplify your proclamation of the gospel, you can amplify the message that you bear of God's salvation, or by the way that you live, you can dampen that message so that your proclamation of the gospel is not being heard, so that it is not being seen because your life doesn't bear the fruit that God is working in you. Now, we've likely experienced the amplifying power of a message. There are likely uh, people in your life who have proclaimed the gospel to you, and that, that message, it's amplified because their life bears so much fruit for God. In their life, you see an aroma of Christ that is pleasing to your sight, and so when they speak, they just have this tendency to be able to speak to your heart because they uh, walk the talk. But we also likely have run into people who have been greatly damaged by a person who was proclaiming the gospel, but their life didn't bear the fruit of the gospel. Maybe even here this morning, there are some who have been so wounded by a person who uh, told them the message of Christ, but was a hypocrite in the way that they lived. Now, sometimes the uh, person who's making that judgment can be wrong, but sadly, oftentimes they're right. By the way that this person has lived, they've dampened the proclamation of the gospel. So then the question Peter poses for us this morning is this, does your life amplify your message? Does your life amplify your message? Let's read the text together in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Peter writes this to the church and to us. He says these words, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you pray with me, church? Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you and God confess that we are weak and needy people. God, we need you to hear this word. Would you open our eyes to the wonders of what you would have for us this morning? And God, would you use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, drive it into our hearts that we would be a changed people who live a life that is a sweet aroma of Christ. And God, by the power of your word this morning, transforming our lives as we see the glory of Christ, Lord, would you use this to equip us, God, equip us to be effective proclaimers of the gospel. God, would we see people saved through the ministry 
of those who are proclaiming your excellencies in this church, Lord. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we find ourselves at a transition point in the book of 1 Peter. We've spent the last several weeks, if you've been with us, I'm sure you uh, have been so blessed by this. Peter has been laying out the doctrine of our living hope. And it's a doctrine we understand that we desperately need if we want to endure in the midst of suffering. But in verses 11 to 12, we find that Peter makes a shift from doctrine to conduct. He makes a shift from theology to your practice of that theology. And what moves him to make this shift is that his felt need that he gives some practical exhortations about what he's just spoken about in verses 9 and 10. You'll remember from last week that Peter told us that as the people of God, he said in verse 9, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Peter said that we are a people for his own possession, but he didn't stop there. He also said that we are those things for this purpose, that we may proclaim his excellencies. Now to expand on our purpose, to drive deep into our purpose uh, in this world, Peter moves from doctrine to conduct. Now Peter in this letter is not going to stop teaching doctrine altogether, but now uh, we'll see in the next coming weeks that his primary aim is the way that we live. In the midst of persecution, he wants us to take up our calling. And in our text this morning, we find that our calling is this, to live a life that amplifies our message. Well, the first thing Peter wants us to know is this, that my life amplifies my message when I furiously fight the power of sin. If we desire to live a life that amplifies our message, what Peter says in verse 11 is that we must abstain from the passions of the flesh which are waging war against our souls. Peter tells us we're engaged in a battle, and it's a battle against the power of sin fighting against the health of our souls, against the welfare of our souls. And so he urges us and he exhorts us to fight. Now, he's already shown us our mission, that our mission, that our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to the watching world. But here he reminds us that we execute this mission uh, on a ground that is not friendly. The territory where we execute this mission is not friendly territory. This is a war zone. And in this war zone, your very soul is at stake. See, we proclaim his excellencies and the passions of our flesh are seeking our destruction. Knowing this then, Peter wants now to inform us about the nature of our fight. And we have some substructure under this point, and I want you to understand a few things about this fight. The first thing I want you to understand about this fight is that it is an urgent fight. This is an urgent fight that we are ferociously fighting in. Peter begins in verse 11 with this word. He says, beloved. Now by doing this, Peter is reminding them both that they're beloved by God. Some of the theology that he ran through in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that they are elect exiles, that they have a living hope in Jesus Christ, that they have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. This church knows by now and we know by now as Peter has spoken to us that we are beloved by God. But Peter also wants them to know that that this church, it's, it's greatly loved by himself. 
Peter loves this church. And so now Peter says, I urge you, and we understand that this is the urging of a person who loves uh, the church so deeply. This is a loving appeal, a loving exhortation to live a life that is uh, lived in light of the gospel truths you just heard. This is the kind of appeal and exhortation we can imagine that we would give as a parent to maybe our unbelieving child where you just want to grab someone and shake them and wish that you don't have the words to describe uh, the life that you wish they would live. And you want to shake them and say, live this life. Peter lovingly appeals to us with great urgency. He says, beloved, I urge you. In fact, the language, uh, just I urge you, it's it's not even strong enough. This is a strong urge. This is a strong exhortation to embrace a conduct of life that is fitting with their new identity. And so multiple times throughout the New Testament, we find this, these words, I urge you, at a critical transition point uh, in letters where they're moving from doctrine to conduct. And the reason why it's such a strong urging, the reason why it's such a strong exhortation is because the authors have laid out such a deep theology and they don't want you to miss it. They don't want it to be wasted by theology not affecting your heart. And so church, don't miss this. Do not miss this. Peter is urging us to not waste the last uh, nine weeks that we've spent in 1 Peter. Peter is urging us to live a life that is lived in light of the deep theology that we now understand. Don't waste what God has taught you about your living hope. Peter urges us. And the urge is so strong because isn't it possible to hear the right things, to be convinced of our identity in Christ, to be convinced that our purpose is to proclaim his excellencies and yet live in a way that disqualifies our proclamation? live in a way that dampens our ability to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And so the urge is strong. Live in a way that amplifies your message. Peter wants us to know it's an urgent fight. Peter wants us to know it's an expectant fight. It's an expectant fight. And so he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Because our allegiance is to Christ, what Peter says is that we are strangers and aliens in this world. This earth is not our home. As Christians, we dwell in a foreign land as aliens because our homeland is in heaven where Christ is. But it's important to to note this, that, that what Peter is saying to the church is this, you're not called out of the world. Though you are a sojourner, though you are in exile, you are still to be a part of the world. And if God wanted to at any time, he could take us up to heaven. But God has chosen for you, for me at this very moment to be here to proclaim his excellencies. And Peter wants you to know that as you do that, you are different. You are not an earthly native awaiting heavenly citizenship. You are a citizen of heaven, dwelling in a land that is not your own. Then what Peter is saying then is this, that as an exile, as an alien, as a stranger, your job isn't to capitulate to the world's values, to capitulate to the type of life that the world lives. Your job then is to pursue Christ's likeness in the world that doesn't value Christ's values. You're to live in light of your calling. It's the same reason that Peter, you'll see in chapter 1 verse 17, says that as exiles, In this world, we need to fear God. 
as exiles in this world. We don't live for the praise of man. We don't live because we're scared of other people's opinions of us. We live fearing God. We live to bring exaltation and glory to God as exiles in this earth. So then it should be no surprise to us that we are different. Don't you know it to be true by experience that when you pursue a life of Christ, it does not take long for people to notice that you are different? If you're in ministry, you can't make it about 10 seconds without someone looking at you really weird. Conversations go like this. Hi, I'm Miles. The other person says, hi, I'm blank. And then uh, they say, oh, what do you do? And I say, oh, I work at a church. And I just love seeing where their eyes go when you say that you work at a church. People look at their shoes. People look at the wall. But they won't look at you in the eyes. A few weeks ago, I was reminded of how different I am, even from the people that are closest to me. I have a group chat with my, my whole extended families in it, and on election night, my phone just started, like, you know when you're in part of a group chat, and you're like, I gotta leave this thing, because it was like 120 messages. My phone was just going off, and I started reading it, and my family was rallying against this notion that the conservatives should have a leader that believes that abortion is okay. And I felt personally attacked by that, being the only person in this group who uh, disagreed with that. And then they moved on from that conversation to say that religion, that God has no place in politics, that we shouldn't elect a leader who believes in uh, something that was written 2,000 years ago, that to do so is absurd. And I read these messages, and, I, and I'm fighting the urge to be a keyboard warrior, and so I just put the phone down, but I was reminded that I'm different even from the people who are closest to me in flesh. Because I am a follower of Christ, I am different even than those in my family. See, it's not just things like our beliefs that make us stick out. The purity of our speech makes us stick out. The way we give our time to the Lord, the way we manage our household, the way we manage our finances. Don't you love people's expressions when they ask you what you did on the weekend and you said, oh, I went to church. See, you're different. And all of these things cause the watching world to scratch their head and ask why we live life the way that we do. But you see, it's expected. What Peter is saying to you here is the life that is lived for the glory of Christ causes us to stick out. In fact, if you don't find that in this world, among unbelievers, that you are different, if you don't find yourself in hostile territory, the problem might be is that you uh, have aligned yourself with the wrong side. The problem might be is that you're actually not a follower of Christ, that you've never given your life to the Lord, and because you haven't given that, he hasn't transformed you and made you stick out in this world. See, if you're treated as an alien, as a stranger, as a complete weirdo in this world, take heart, you are. Turn to your neighbor, tell him, you're weird. You're weird. You're different. Uh, this is an expected fight. This is an internal fight Peter wants us to know. It's an internal fight. And so next he calls us, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, these passions are the desires that we have. It's the inclination of our soul to uh, either pursue one thing or to forsake another. Now, the passions of the flesh that Peter talks about here are those passions, those inclinations we have that directly oppose God. They oppose his kingdom and they oppose his will. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes this about the passions of our flesh. He says, Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and listen to what happened to us because of the passions of the flesh that we were living in. We were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. In Romans 8, Paul expands on the passions of the flesh. He says, to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. See, by pursuing the flash passions of the flesh, Paul says, we're pursuing the things that oppose God. This is the reason that God has given us this holy, his Holy Spirit, so that within us there is a war between the passions of the flesh and the desires of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our lives. And so Paul says in Romans 8 that we are to put to death the deeds of the body, that we are to be mortifying our flesh. Now, Peter's already labored this point, that our lives are not to be molded by such desires. In chapter 1, verse 14, look what he says. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so we find ourselves in a battle that is internal. It is a battle on the passions of our soul. And Peter is calling you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And so whatever that passion is that we feel arising within us, that we feel the need to pursue, we are to abstain from it. Whether it is anger, whether it is worry, whether it is lust, whether it is discontentment, whether it is gossip, whatever it is, each of us have passions of the flesh that are prone to uh, rise up within us that Peter calls you now to take battle against. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And he calls you to do so because of the intensity of the fight. He calls you to abstain from these passions because this is a life or death fight. This is a life or death fight. Now, Peter says that these passions, they wage war against your soul. See, entertaining these desires, at first it seems harmless. First it seems like it's not a big deal, but in the end it leads to our death. The, uh, pursuing the passions of the flesh, it makes us spiritually weak. It makes us spiritually ineffective. And Peter tells us that they're aimed against our soul. See, the passions of the flesh, they're trying to destroy the spiritual health and the welfare of our souls. So don't let this truth pass by you. You are in a war. This is not peacetime. Even at this very moment, the passions of the flesh are taking aim at you. And they are taking aim at the welfare of your soul. They are seeking your destruction while the world watches your life. The passions of the flesh are rising up in us. Later, Peter says that it's not only the passions of the flesh, the devil wants to see us fall. So Peter says the devil prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And yet there are many in this room, even me at times, even you at times if you're honest, that are not taking seriously Peter's plea to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Many of us were trifling with soul-destroying sin that is affecting our spiritual health every time that we indulge in it. Maybe you're willing to be entertained by content you know is so dishonoring to God. Maybe you waste your time, maybe you waste your money, these resources that God has given you to serve him with. Is it possible that the, there are passions of the flesh that are 
in your life that you've just become comfortable with, that are taking aim at your soul, that are waging war with you, seeking your destruction. And we live in a culture that uh, really cares about physical health. And so many of you, you uh, don't smoke cigarettes because you know that smoking one cigarette won't kill you, but it will affect your health. That if you keep walking down this path, it's going to have some very negative effects on your physical well-being, on your physical health. And so there are things that we won't uh, do. There are activities that we won't partake in because we just know it's bad for us. If I was up here and I held a bottle of bleach up and I said, oh, you got to drink this bottle of bleach. It tastes like Kool-Aid. I don't think I'd have anyone come up to drink it. You would say, I don't care how good that bottle of bleach is, it is going to kill me. It is going to seriously affect my physical health. Listen, if we care about our physical health, how much more should we care about our spiritual health? How much more should we care about the things that are robbing us of our spiritual welfare, that are robbing us of our spiritual vitality, that are in our lives and are taking aim at our soul's destruction? John Owen wrote so helpfully on this, and he he wrote this. It'll be up on the screen. He said, Sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting. Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God, which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt. This battle will last more or less all our days. If sin is always acting, we are in trouble if we are not always mortifying. He that stands still allows and allows his enemies to exert double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the end. If sin is subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work, working in the business of killing our souls, and we are slothful, negligent, and foolish in this battle, can we expect a favorable outcome? There is no safety but in a constant warfare. Let me ask you, church, what area of your life are you letting up in the warfare against sin? Maybe it's been a season where you've been relatively apathetic about the sin in your life. Hear Peter's plea to you, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Furiously fight against the passions of the flesh. See, if our life is going to amplify our message, we need to look categorically different. Now, this happens by furiously fighting the power of sin, but Peter also wants us to know that it happens as we passionately pursue the conduct of Christ. And so these two things, really, they're one and the same. We abstain from the passions of the flesh, and we pursue uh, the conduct that uh, is Christ-like that brings praise and glory to Christ. And so Peter begins in verse 12. He says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. As exiles living among the Gentiles, the temptation may be to pursue a life just like theirs. And in case the false belief arises in this church or in our church, that in order to win the culture, we need to capitulate to the culture's values, Peter exhorts us now to pursue honorable conduct. Now, conduct is one of Peter's favorite ways of describing the life that we are to live in light of who we are in Christ. This word conduct, it refers to our day-by-day living. It refers to the actions and the tasks that make up our lives. And so Peter constantly throughout this book is referring to our conduct, urging us to live, to conduct our lives in a way that is fitting to the theology that we understand. 
And so in verses 115, he calls us to holy conduct because we have a holy God. Verses 118, he reminds us that we were ransomed from futile ways or futile conduct. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we'll see this later, he calls a wife to conduct her life, to have a conduct of life that will win her husband to Christ even without a word. In chapter 3.16, he calls the church to pursue good conduct as it will lead those who slander and revile the church, it will lead to their shame. See, Peter, he's concerned about our conduct because this is what God uses to make our life in a pleasing, a pleasing aroma of Christ. This is what God uses so that when the world sees our life, the proclamation of the gospel, the message of Christ is amplified in us. And so Peter says our conduct is to be honorable. It's to be honorable. Now this word describes something that's beautiful to the watching world. For something to be honorable, it's to, it is it carries with it a certain appeal, and this appeal, the appeal of our lives, the uh, honorable conduct of our lives, it uh, gathers the attention of the watching world. Now, I can think of no better example of uh, the con- uh, good conduct that gathers the attention of the watching world than the conduct of Christ. Think for a moment about our Lord. He didn't come in this world and capitulate to sin in order to be like us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says he came and though he was tempted with every sin, he did not sin. He did not let up on his heavenly values, on his heavenly virtues in any way. At a young age, the gospel writer Luke records that people recognized a categorical difference in him. And so as a boy, he's sitting in the temple and the people who know God most are amazed and shocked as they hear this boy answer questions that they're asking him. As Jesus lived his life despite constant slander, despite constant reviling, despite the devil himself tempting him, Jesus remained pure in his conduct. And now, by his perfect life, by his perfect righteousness, we can have perfect life. We can have perfect righteousness. We praise God that Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect conduct. He remained pure in the midst of a sinful world. Now, if we're honest, pursuing a life of conduct doesn't seem like a great battle plan. In verse 11, Peter was urging us with this this war cry, we are in war, we are in battle, know that you need to fight. And then in verse 12, he says, the way that you fight is by living a good life. This reminds me of like the father who is helping his son who's being bullied and, and helps them by saying, listen, when the bullies come, just lay down on the ground in the fetal position and just let them kick you. That's the best thing you can do. And at first, it feels like that. It feels like we're just laying down our lives, like we're not really fighting. But in the remainder of this verse, what Peter wants to do is reveal that God plans to use your Christ-like conduct. He plans to use it for the evangelizing of the lost. To lead unbelievers from a place where they slander you, where they speak against you, where they say what you're doing is evil, to a place where they are glorifying God because of your proclamation, because of your life. 
I want you to see the three-step process of how God plans to use your honorable conduct in the life of unbelievers. Step one is this. First, you embrace unbeliever slander. You embrace unbeliever slander. And so Peter, he says, now as you seek to live a life of honorable conduct, he reminds us that he will be, we will be slandered. He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, You see, a life that passionately pursues Christ like conduct opposes the values that are esteemed and held dear in the Gentiles' hearts. For the Christian to leave their old way and to carry their cross and to pursue Christ, it's a slap in the face of the watching world. It's a slap in the face of all other gods for us to leave the world and say only Jesus Christ is God. It's a slap in the face of all of their values to leave uh, the world and to follow Jesus Christ and to say he is my Lord and my commander and what he says I will do no matter what the world says. I don't care about the world's values. I care about what Jesus values. See, and to do this is to oppose what the world values. And so Peter says that such living will receive slander. They will speak about you as evildoers. This is why following Jesus is such a great cost. Do you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? And he said to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus, looking into his heart, knowing his challenges, knowing the difficulty he would have following him, said this, if you want to follow me, then go and sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And this rich young ruler, he left saddened because the cost of following Jesus was so great. He now understood as he spoke with our Lord that in order to follow Jesus, you needed to be willing to leave the world, to leave the values of the world, to leave the gods of the world, and the cost was too great for him. But when you do follow Jesus, you leave the values, you leave the God of the world, and you will be required to face slander. Instead of seeing your departure from your old lifestyle as a good thing, many will speak about you as an evil doer. Is it not true that we are constantly slandered for being Christian? So that in our culture, there's tolerance for just about anyone who believes just about anything as long as it is not Christian belief. Is it not true that as we uh, stand up for what we believe about same-sex marriage, that we are slandered as those who uh, believe archaic beliefs about a book that was written 2,000 years ago? Isn't it true that we, as we stand for, uh, against abortion and as we seek to help uh, women who are in pregnant, uh, crisis pregnancies, that we are slandered as those who uh, do not care about women's rights? See, as we pursue Christ, the watching world, they speak of us as evildoers. But Peter wants us to become comfortable with this. Peter wants to know, as you are spoken of as an evildoer, God is doing something. This is all part of the process. This is step one. God is at work. Step two for us is we display good works. First, we embrace unbeliever slander, but step two is we embrace good works. And so the next step in the process of God using your Christ-like conduct is that unbelieving Gentiles will see your good works. Do you see what Peter says there in verse 12? He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. 
See, the Gentiles, they don't just see Christians performing good works. This is a seeing that Peter talks about that's paired with interpreting. It's not just a visual seeing. They're seeing and they're making observations based on what they're seeing. As Peter wrote these words, he surely had in mind what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. It's going to come up on the screen. Jesus said this. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See, Jesus and Peter, they give us this promise that despite slander, unbelievers will glorify God based on what they see in you, based on the life of good works that they see you living out. See, God is at work. This is all part of the process. But notice here, notice that glorification, that these unbelievers glorying in God will only come as you embrace a life of good works. Now the works that Peter has in mind here are the things that we do in obedience to God to pursue Christ-like conducts. These are things like caring for the poor, like bearing one another's burdens, like giving to the church or to other causes like evangelizing those who revile and slander us. These are good works like being a good citizen in the places that we live. These are the good works that Peter compels us to. Now, some of us, we hear this phrase, good works, and instinctively we put our backs up. I can see that some of you are ready to go Martin Luther on me right now. You're pulling out your hammer. You're pulling out your nail. You're looking for a place in this room to nail the 99 theses. This church believes in good works. I'm out of here. But before... You nail the 99 theses. I want you to hear this truth. God loves good works. I can see some of you, you're still not with me. You want to rush the stage. You're looking at the elders. Like, when are you going to get up and drag this guy out? You got to get him off the stage. He's talking about good works. I want you to hear this. God loves good works. And he's planning to use your good works to save unbelievers. You see, the Reformation, it wasn't anti-good works. What the, ref, ref, what the reformers stood against was the prevailing theology of the day that your good works could earn you, could merit you salvation. They stood against this notion that by your own righteousness, you could be justified. And so let me say it for complete clarity, your good works cannot save you. Now let this be a call to any who are here this morning and who are here with an an assurance of their salvation that is based on their good works. It is God's grace for you in this moment to pull the rug of assurance out from underneath your feet so that you see you are not standing on firm foundation at all. The only foundation that we have to stand on, the only works that we have to stand on are the works of Jesus Christ. And the faith that we place in the works of Jesus Christ save us. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says these words, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Listen, and it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Perhaps you're here this morning and you believe you're saved based on your own merit, based on Uh, you being a good person. And God is speaking to you in this moment, saying that your, your works, your righteousness, it cannot save you, but there is a man whose works can save you. Jesus Christ came to this world, the God man. He came and he lived the perfect life that we needed to live to God. 
None of us could do it, but Jesus Christ did. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. He died a necessary death, the death that we needed to die to pay the penalty for our sinfulness. It was the payment that was required of our sinful living, and Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing the wrath of God so that we could bear his righteousness. Being hung on the cross and dying there, he raised three days later with our new life so that we could now enter into a new relationship with Jesus. And this relationship comes only by faith, not of good works, not because you're a good person, only because of who Jesus Christ is and his willingness to save you. So understand this reality, works cannot save you. And yet God loves our good works. See, as believers, God looks at his children and he loves to see them pursuing good works. This is why immediately after Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, uh, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why Paul wrote in Titus, he said, for the grace of God has appeared. This is going to come up on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and listen to this church, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As a child of God, you were saved to be zealous for good works. See, God loves our works. This is why the psalmist could pray in chapter 11, verse 7, of the Psalms, he said, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. You see, God's not up in heaven looking at all all of his children uh, doing good works, doing good things, and looking at them and saying, you shouldn't have done that. That was legalism. You're a legalist for doing that. And yet many of us We can be prone to respond to good works or even someone who's exhorting us to do good works. We're prone to slap a label of legalism on it. And so church, what what Peter's calling us to be is to be a people who pursue the good works that have been prepared for us and to be a people who exhort one another to good works so that as the world watches our lives, they uh, they will see Christ in us. And yet so many of us, are prone when someone points out a work, good work that we can do or an evil work that we can stop, we're prone to not listen to them because we slap a label of legalism on it. Let's just work on a really clear definition of legalism. Legalism is the belief that you uh, can be saved by what you do. It is not legalistic to pursue a life of good works, knowing that your good works can't save you, but knowing that they are pleasing to God, knowing that God loves righteous deeds. And so as one Christian exhorts another to a good work, let's not ignore it, it, deeming it as legalistic. Let's praise God because it's God's grace when he uses another believer to look in our lives and show us how we can live in a way that is more pleasing to him, in a way that it brings more honor to him, in a way that makes us more effective in our evangelism. 
See, step two is that we display good works. Step three in the process is that God, he expands his family. And by our good works, by our life that is amplifying our message, we expand God's family. See, the last way that God is using your Christ-like conduct is to bring unbelievers to a place where they are glorifying him. Do you see this in the text? See, the last step is at the end of verse 12. It says that these Gentiles, having spoken against you as evildoers, having seen your good deeds, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there are two ways that we could understand this verse. And the first way is that uh, perhaps it's a glory that comes to God from vindication. Indeed, there is a day coming where all who did not believe will see God coming in judgment. And Paul writes in Philippians that uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And surely on that day, those who reviled us, those who slandered us, uh, we will receive vindication and God will receive glory because they finally realized that we were the ones who were living in the right. And there will be vindication for you as you pursue a life of Christ-like conduct, as you pursue a life of good works, there will be vindication. While I don't believe that that's what Peter is referring to here, this needs to be a truth that motivates us. There will be a day where you stand on the right. See, the accusation against Christians is always that we are on the wrong side of history. But if you pursue Christ, there is a day coming where all will see that you were on the right side, that you followed the right God. The fact that we will be vindicated should motivate us to good work, to uh, Christ-like conduct and good works. Peter actually refers to this in chapter 3. He says this, having a good conscience... So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, as you are slandered and you pursue a a life of good conduct, there is a day coming that when those who slander you will be put to shame. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and I thought it's kind of like the day that's coming this year when the Leafs win the cup. How many people have slandered the Leafs saying they'll never win the cup, they're never going to win, and this year's the year. And what shame will come to all of you who have spoken against the Leafs saying they could never win when we stand at the parade this year, all right? You're going to be put to shame. Unbelievers will be put to shame on that final day when they stand before God and see that we were in the right. Now, another way to interpret this, and what I believe Peter's getting at here, even though it is true that uh, God will receive glory from vindication, is that uh, Peter is referring here to a glory that will come to God as believers are being saved by seeing your life of conduct and seeing your life of good works. This is the exact way that Jesus talks about it in the verse that we read in Matthew 5, verse 16, when he says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. And I believe that P- Peter's uh, using Jesus as a resource here. He's quoting Jesus. And when Jesus said this, he was referring to a glory that God would receive because unbelievers are coming to him. It's also what Peter tells us will happen for the wives of an unbelieving husband. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, you'll see there that he calls 
wives to, by their conduct, now notice that's the same word that uh, Peter uses in chapter 2, verse 11. He calls wives to Christ-like conduct. He says that unbelieving husbands will see, again, the same word that is used in 2 Peter, verse 12. They will, the, these husbands will see, and there it says they will be one without a word. And Peter is exhorting unbelieving wives to live in a way, to conduct themselves in a way that unbelieving husbands will see their lives and be one to Christ for salvation. And this is what Peter is speaking about here. And so here is the promise for the church. God will use your good works for the conversion of the lost. So endure. So continue to pursue God renders ineffective the lives of those who capitulate to culture. So stand firm in a day where evil abounds, in a day where temptation to live like the world abounds. Stand firm and live a life that is a pleasing aroma of Christ. God is using this life to bring many to salvation. See, while Peter is primarily talking about a glory that will come to salvation, I believe that both are true. See, there may not be a day where all who watch you come to Christ. Surely some will, according to the promise of this verse. But no matter what, it's a win-win situation. Whether it's vindication or salvation, there is a day coming where God will receive glory because you stood firm in enduring in good works. God will get all the glory. So then our question is this. What good work has God prepared for you to get after? What good work has God prepared for you even today to embrace? What action do you need to take up to bring God to glory that God might use to steer unbelievers into his kingdom? And so here in these two verses, Paul has given us the action plan. It's not by our capitulation to the world's values that unbelievers will be one to him. It's by our conduct. It's by our Christ-likeness. So then pursue a life of difference from the world. Trust that God will use this life of difference to bring salvation to your life, to to the lost. Trust that God will use your life as a pleasing aroma so that unbelievers see you and they glorify God on the day of visitation. Perhaps it's time for us to do a microphone check, to look at our lives, to ask ourselves if our lives are amplifying the message that we are proclaiming. How loudly is your life proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is your life showing the battle that you are in against sin? How is your life filled with good works that God might use to bring the watching world to a place of glorifying him? May our lives loudly proclaim the excellency of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father, we need your help. Lord, there are so many things that come to mind, passions of the flesh, ways that we live, ways that we conduct our lives, so many things that do not bring honor to you. God, so many ways that we could change, so many sins that we could put on, so many virtues that we could put on. And so God, we pray for your help.
And Lord, we thank you that it is not through us, Lord, that it is through your Son. He is doing a work in us of transformation. As we see the glory of your Son, he is transforming us from one degree of glory to another, that we might be those who are transformed and conformed into the image of Christ-likeness. And that as we bear likeness to Jesus Christ, the world might see us, might see our good works, might hear our words of proclamation of good hope, of living hope in Jesus Christ, and might be one to you, Lord, that you might expand your kingdom by our lives. God, we pray that you would do it. God, use us, we pray, as instruments in your hands so that at the end of the day, all of us, when we stand in heaven, can look back and say that you, yours, was the victory, that you won the battle, that you brought the lost to yourself through your church. God, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.